Before we get started, I want to make a few announcements. First, our fall online programs are open for registration, including Dreams in Times of Turmoil, Becoming Marcel Proust, Claiming Self in a Conflicted World, and a reading and consultation group for clinicians, Attachment, Affect Regulation, and the Reflective Function in Analytical Psychotherapy. In light of the financial difficulties imposed by the pandemic, we are continuing to offer our online courses at 40% off our regular fee. You can support our efforts to make education accessible during this time by making a donation. Psychology Seminars from the C.G. Young Institute of Chicago. Mythology of the Great Self Within, with Robert Moore, Ph.D. This episode is the first session from the series, Mythology of the Great Self Within, from the course description. World mythological traditions present many images of the great self that dwells within each human individual. This course examines a number of these images from mythological and spiritual traditions, and then turns to a discussion of the psychological basis for this phenomenon. Special attention is given to the implications for our experience of both pathological grandiosity and creative visioning. It was recorded in 1993. Robert Moore, PhD, was Distinguished Service Professor of Psychology, Psychoanalysis, and Spirituality in the Graduate Center of the Chicago Theological Seminary, where he was the founding director of the New Institute for Advanced Studies in Spirituality and Wellness. An internationally recognized psychoanalyst and consultant in private practice in Chicago, he served as a training analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago and was director of research for the Institute for Integrated Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy and the Chicago Center for Integrative Psychotherapy author and editor of numerous books in psychology and spirituality, he lectured internationally on his formulation of a neo-Jungian psychoanalysis and integrative psychotherapy. His publications include The Archetype of Initiation, Sacred Space, Ritual Process, and Personal Transformation, The Magician and the Analyst, The Archetype of the Magus in Occult Spirituality and Jungian Psychology, and Facing the Dragon, Confronting Personal and Spiritual Grandiosity. There will be links for the complete series and for all of Dr. Moore's lectures. It's a great joy to me to be able to uh, to come back and do this uh, small, short uh, course uh, in the Institute curriculum uh, because... Uh, I believe that the idea of a great self that dwells within uh, is one of the very important ideas that 
Uh, Carl Jung's psychology helps us to understand uh, in uh, unprecedented uh, depth and clarity. And so I've titled this, uh, this little introduction to the uh, fundamental importance of the study of, uh, of what Jungians call archetypal materials, uh, of course, folklore, uh, spiritual traditions, uh, and with a special emphasis on world mythology, uh, for understanding uh, the deep structures of the human psyche. And uh, so, uh, as you see in your, uh, in your course description, we're going to uh, have four sessions. And, uh, and of course, uh, you understand that this is simply a, a very brief introduction to work that will take all of us uh, probably the rest of our lives. Um, and that many of the other uh, courses here in the curriculum uh, enable you to expand upon what we will do together. Uh, but the first session tonight, we're going to hit the ground running, and I'm going to try to lecture for about an hour and, uh, and touch on the theme of the great self in world mythology. Uh, and uh, just to give us a sense of the way in which the human psyche and spirit in reflecting upon itself has given an, an enormous number of different images to this idea of a great self uh, in the human soul. Uh, next week, <clears throat> uh, I will share with you some of my reflections upon the uh, wider Freudian psychoanalytic tradition and the Adlerian psychoanalytic tradition in terms of the way in which those traditions have attempted to explain what they know to be uh, uh, expressions of uh, something extremely large and uh, uh, creative, potentially very creative and often dangerous uh, in the, in the uh, unconscious of the human being. Uh, the third week, uh, I will, on February the 1st, I will uh, present uh, some of the Jungian tradition with regard to this great self within. And I emphasize here Jungian, not post-Jungian. Uh, one of the uh, things that I think it's very important for us to do in our time is to get the under, get very clear about the under, the uh, what I consider to be the fact that many people that call themselves post-Jungians are not Jungian at all uh, because of their avoidance of this whole issue that we're going to be addressing uh, in this course. Um, and then finally, on February the 8th, uh, I will talk about some of the uh, clinical implications, uh, both for uh, understanding... Uh, the task of psychotherapy and understanding our own personal individuation process. And if you will remind me, I will indeed try to uh, reflect that evening about uh, uh, the public implications of coming to terms with the great self within, because uh, I wasn't joking a while ago when I said that as we meet tonight during the uh, uh, inaugural festivities around a new president that what, in fact, we are doing uh, 
will be reflecting upon the psychological ground that's being acted out uh, by our country in this uh, in this process. There's there is a there is a projection of the great self upon the president, the president elect, and uh, we will be talking that last evening a little bit. If you'll remind me uh, about how uh, one can. Uh, anticipate some of the promise and pitfalls of, of uh, relating to the great self on the part of any uh, public leader uh, like our president-elect. Uh, so uh, we've got a lot to do. And, uh, and yet let me underline again that uh, this topic is really at the core of, of what makes Jungian psychology Carl Jung's psychology different from other psychologies, and in a word, as a word of uh, introduction, uh, <clears throat> let me just uh, say something that we'll be reiterating as we go: that uh, not all psychological theories are the same, and not all psychoanalytic theories are the same, and not all views of the unconscious are the same, and uh, 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 it has been the uh, the belief of uh, people who have been grounded in Jung's thought that world mythical traditions and world spiritual traditions have to be studied not because they are of any simple antiquarian interest, that they contain clues, they contain uh, partial maps of what Carl Jung called the collective unconscious, or what uh, has been called in other places the objective psyche, uh, and that uh, beneath the level of the personal unconscious and the family unconscious and the cultural unconscious, uh, which certainly exist, and we can we we should speak later in the course about how each of these levels uh, influence the emergence of the great self. Uh, that there is a substrate. Uh, which is common to the species that we are, and uh, and it is in uh, that it is in understanding some of the implications of a a um, a self which is grounded in the collective unconscious uh, that that the uniqueness of Carl Jung's psychology really lies. Uh, unfortunately, many people today in the Jungian community spend very little time looking uh, at the implications of uh, this great self within, uh, looking at its phenomenology, uh, or trying to understand uh, how it affects clinical practice, uh, even in those who don't believe in it. Uh, so uh, without any other introductory words, let me just jump in. If you study the history of uh, ideas in Europe, uh, and many of you undoubtedly have read Ellenberger's book, The Discovery of the Unconscious, uh, you, of course, notice that uh, Freud and Jung were not the first ones to think psychologically about the human unconscious. 
there were many predecessors uh, to these great geniuses. Uh, but tonight I want to mention and talk briefly about one of these people who were the predecessor, who was a predecessor of, of modern psychoanalysis that is almost never talked about in this context. And I want to lift his name up to you and suggest to you that uh, uh, he was one of the great heralds of the kind of study that you and I are doing uh, together tonight. His name is, was Ludwig Feuerbach. And let me refer you to this little book which created an enormous stir when it was published. It's called The Essence of Christianity. And it was published in 1841. He was uh, one of the young scholars who were known as the Young Hegelians. And it was uh, uh, out of this group that Karl Marx also came. Uh, uh, this man uh, made a tremendous impact with this book in 1841. Uh, it was a revolutionary book. It was a frightening book to the, to the Christian world at that time. Uh, because what he did was to essentially turn theology on its head. Uh, at that time, uh, Christian theology in, in Germany was dominated by Hegelian uh, thought, and you've, er you've all heard of uh, Søren Kierkegaard, who was one of the per persons who rebelled against uh, uh, the elaborate speculative systems, the Hegelian ideas of the absolute moving on to uh, unification, uh, thesis, antithesis, synthesis. But you probably have not heard much about Feuerbach. <clears throat> Feuerbach was a really adept psychologist. And his argument was that Christian theology was really anthropology. And that if you wanted to understand what was really going on with Christian theology, what you had to understand was that human beings were intuiting themselves as a species when they were writing theology. And that when they wrote all the elaborate Christian theology, that this was in essence a projection of the human self in its essence, in its evolutionary essence, one might say. And um, so he, in this book and other work, he interpreted Christian dogma psychologically, and saying that essentially what was going on was that no one individual of us would be able adequately to express the potential that was in us as a species, but that the essential human was projected and reflected in Christian dogma. And so, that, so that's why he often said theology is anthropology.
Uh, now, I want to suggest to you that if you study this, it reads very Jungian, if you read it as psychology. And so it is, uh, it is in that Feuerbachian tradition. Now, you don't have to buy Feuerbach's uh, anti-metaphysical bias. I mean, it, one still has to decide what one's going to do about philosophical metaphysics. Uh, today, so don't take me wrong. I'm not saying that this is the last word in all theology psychology. I'm simply saying that Feuerbach understood something that it would take much, many years, many years would go by before Carl Jung would come along and elaborate a way of thinking which would explain some of the plumbing underneath Feuerbach's claim. And so uh, uh, <clears throat> Feuerbach said theology is anthropology. Uh, we might expand that a little bit and say, yes, you're right, Ludwig. Uh, the image of Christ can be understood as a projection of the uh, deep structures of the self but it is not just Christian spiritual tradition that can be understood that way. That we can understand a great amount of the world's uh, imaginative, mythological, and symbolic traditions in this way. And so we would say mythology is anthropology. Or in mythology, if we look at it, and we, and we do what he suggests, we write it back and say, this is telling us about our species potential. Or as Carl Jung, we'll talk about later, as Carl Jung would put it, this is telling us about the two million year old human who is in our DNA. Or some of us today would say the four million year old primate. Uh, <clears throat> so that is a way of framing this, and uh, uh, that deserves a book or two. That whole Feuerbach-Jung dialogue deserves a book or two if somebody wants to write a book right quick. <laughs> but let's move on now, and let me just, uh, let me just uh, frame this a little bit uh, more. The... The argument Feuerbach made and the one that I think uh, we want to continue th reflecting on is that if you look at these symbolic materials, they are issuing out of a, 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 an entity in the human psyche that's far larger than the individual human ego or little s self. And... Uh, we're going to run through a number of different uh, traditions before this, before we take a break, and then we'll come back after the break, and you can add to the ones I'm going to mention because you can mention a, a, a great number out of your own experience. But I'd like us to just go quickly through some of these and touch on some of the themes uh, that if you're, if you're coming at this material thinking about, well, I'm going to try to understand what this entity in the human psyche is like. Uh, 
how, how that kind of question, is there a psychological ground to this great self that you can see phenomenologically, uh, how that reframes uh, our different materials. And I'd like to start with, uh, with, the, uh, with a fairy tale. Now, you, uh, one of the things you may want to do uh, as we do this together is to look at different fairy tales uh, for clues about the way this great self within manifests itself. Uh, I, I chose one uh, that's been talked about a lot recently uh, that in which it's very, very easy to see. And, of course, it's one that's been explicated by my friend uh, Robert Bly in his book Iron John, uh, the fairy tale called Iron John or Iron Hans. Uh, of course, when Bly looks at that, he, is, he deals with it from the point of view of, uh, of a young male's attempt to come of age. And he's not really looking at it uh, from, a, from the kind of point of view that we are looking at this material from. But let me, uh, you probably all could tell that story. I'm not going to tell the story. I'm just going to point you to a number of things in the story. Uh, I would submit this to you. Wherever you find materials relating to the great self in world mythology, you often find references to gold. Because gold is almost always associated with the great self. And uh, as you remember that story, Iron Hans or Iron John, there's a great deal of stuff about gold in that story. And uh, 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 another thing that we'll be talking about a little later this evening is the way in which royal themes are associated with the great self and many, many different world traditions. Um, and the difficulty in accessing uh, the great self without being destroyed uh, is a recurrent theme. Now, all of these uh, issues surface in the story about Iron John. Um, as you remember, uh, uh, if you think of Iron John as the representation of the great self, early in the story, it's away in the forest and it's not seen for what it is at all. It is... Uh, in fact, extremely dangerous, even in its hidden places. You might even say especially in its hidden places, it's very dangerous. You seek it out at your own peril. Many expeditions disappeared uh, when they were going and trying to find out what was happening in the forest. And it wasn't until uh, a person came along who was sufficiently careful uh, to uh, 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 observe very, very carefully what was happening, uh, that it was noticed that a hand comes up out of the water and grabs things and pulls them under. Uh, uh, once you get a feeling for the great self in the human unconscious uh, and you watch how it functions clinically, you notice that Hand, the hand of the great self does reach up and grab us and pull us under more often than not. 
In fact, epidemiologically speaking, uh, I would say that the uh, if you just look around the world today, uh, how are we doing about relating to the great self and the human psyche? Very badly. Most of us get pulled under. Uh, and you can see this thing being acted out uh, in the Near East now as acting out of a lot of these unconscious great self dynamics. Okay, so in any, in any case, then we get an image of a little boy who uh, confronts the caged great self, the caged Iron John. Um, the parents have it caged. Um, the caged great self is not terribly useful. It's interesting to think about that image as an image of repression, what we would call psychological repression today. Uh, and the story being, uh, the story presents it that the key to, to uh, um, understanding what's happening, the little boy loses his golden ball, it runs in the cage, it rolls into the cage. Uh, how are you going to get your golden ball? Well, you're going to have to get the key that's under the parent's pillow. I say parent because, uh, you know, little boys' uh, keys are under the mother's pillow. Little girls' keys are under the father's pillow. Um, but in any case, uh, <clears throat> the little boy unlocks the door. He goes, he is uh, led by this great self back into a forest. He is put in touch with golden, a golden fountain that he cannot relate to well in a mature way. Uh, he touches the golden liquid and uh, the story emerges as a increasing amount of being affected by the golden liquid. And uh, it moves through a period in which the, uh, the young male uh, hair has been touched by the golden liquid. He has, to, he has to cover it for a great deal of time in the story. Later in the story, someone uncovers, someone who loves him uncovers the golden hair. Um, and uh, there's, a, there's an increasing image of empowerment of the vision of the young man's uh, role in life. And um, toward the end, after he has taken on many hero tasks, and we'll get to the hero in a minute, um, the, uh, the young man uh, <clears throat> gets married. We get wedding symbolism when you get around the great self. Uh, and at the wedding, the transformed Iron John comes, arrives at the wedding, not as a wild man, but as a king in his own right. Uh, a king 
released from an enchantment. <clears throat> there you get a lot of these themes about the great self, about the problem of relating to it, about the uh, contagion of contact with its energy, its gold energy. I want you to be thinking about gold energy during the time we spend together. So it's a wonderful way about, of talking about narcissistic libido. It's a wonderful way of talking about uh, what happens when you touch your grandiosity uh, and uh, the fact that when it touches you, it's awfully hard to get it off. You know, it kind of sticks on you. And uh, if you uh, try to rub it off on somebody else, it'll stick on them too. And uh, so we'll be thinking a lot about uh, the great self and, and gold energy and uh, grandiose libido, etc. But anyway, so that, that fairy tale alone, if you will read that carefully and look at it and, and think about the release and transformation <clears throat> of the energies of the great self and the unconscious, I submit you will have a very different... It, it, it can be seen as consistent with a lot of the things that Robert Bly wants to point out. And one of the things that we could talk about is the, the relationship between initiation, individuation, and the uh, appropriate accessing of the great self. Uh, and so we can, we can touch on that later. But... Uh, as you look at your fairy tales, you should probably look at that one. Read it. Give it a reading in our in the context of our class uh, from Grimm's fairy tales, and that will give you one very important take on this great self. But it's not just fairy tales in which you see this intimation of a great self. Uh, you see it widely within different human spiritual traditions. Some of which I will mention, and then after our break, I uh, hope that you will mention others that come to your mind. One of the uh, most obvious ones that comes to mind, of course, is the rich tradition in Hinduism uh, with regard to the great self within. It's so extremely rich, you could teach course upon course upon course upon course and never exhaust this thing. Because Hinduism, they say, is like a great river with many, many tributaries and little eddies, and there are just so many traditions with regard to this. I could talk about Shiva traditions and the way they reflect the great self. I could talk about Krishna traditions and the way they reflect the great self and so on. <clears throat> but the one that's the most evident is the, uh, is the, uh, the Hindu teaching about the relationship between the Brahman and the Atman. And the Brahman corresponds to the great self. One might say the soul of the world. And the Atman, with a little a, is the individual soul. But in the Hindu tradition, uh, these are the same yet distinct. And this leads to a classical Hindu practice of, uh, of uh, greeting the other and acknowledging the God in the other person. 
we might say, Thou art that. Thou art that. Thou art that. And when they say that, they mean the soul that you are is really united with the soul of all the world. And, uh, I mean, if you study those traditions, if you get into the, uh, the Hindu scriptures, there are many, many references which, which make, which have the great self speaking, uh, through the individual. I'll get into a, a myth cycle from, uh, uh, another aspect of Hinduism in a minute under mythology. But let me just turn to Buddhist tradition. Now again, Buddhism is not one simple little uh, easily understood religious tradition. There are many, many traditions. <clears throat> but if we look even at the most iconoclastic, one of the most iconoclastic traditions within Buddhism, that of Zen, uh, and you look closely, you see this fascinating teaching, uh, although there's a great deal of discussion about the, the, uh, the lack of self in Buddhism. I recently uh, brought out with my co-editor, Daniel Meckel, uh, a book in this Paulist Press series called Self and Liberation, The Young Buddhist Dialogue. If you're interested in the Buddhist uh, interface with this, you might want to look at that book. But uh, it covers a lot of different traditions. But in Zen, uh, it is clear that there is an understanding that beyond your ego, beyond this grasping, egocentric, we would say today, narcissistic, uh, self-centered ego, is a what they call a true person of no rank. That is to say that that deep within you is a reality which in its essence is compassionate. It is not into status climbing, climbing for status. Uh, it is capable of, uh, as they put it, chopping wood and carrying water. And, uh, and uh, it is, in other words, this great self within which is humble and loving and compassionate and that ground which Buddhists often talk about, uh, uh, the ground which issues in the spirit of the Bodhisattva the one who comes who is not possessed by the grasping of the selfish ego. Christian tradition, it's again rich, especially if you study Christian uh, mysticism. Uh, Christian mysticism is replete with... Uh, accounts of uh, this great self manifesting itself through different mystics. Uh, but it, I think it's instructive for us just to turn to the, uh, to the Christian uh, 
uh, New Testament expressions of this uh, before you get into the later developments and just look at the way in which uh, Christians uh, uh, have made a great deal out of Paul's discussion uh, of his experience of the Christ within, uh, saying, it is not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. Uh, all of that Pauline tradition about the Christ within uh, is, uh, if you frame it through this phenomenology of the great self, you would put that as a foremost expression of this. Uh, the, uh, the later theology of the uh, Imago Dei, uh, the image of God, the signature of God and Christ on the soul of the individual would be another expression of this. Um, there were many Christian mystics who uh, uh, got themselves in deep trouble by experiencing the uh, Christ within so powerfully uh, that they made statements about this presence within them that were considered heretical. And, uh, and uh, many of them were punished very severely for articulating their experience of this great self. In Judaism, I think one of the clearest places that you can see this uh, uh, this image of the great self is in Kabbalistic Kabbalistic tradition, and uh, 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 you see there in in many traditions uh, the discussion of the Adam Kadman. Uh, this is the this is the Self, uh, the the great man who, uh, on the fall into human existence, was split uh, into more than one uh, expression, and yet the uh, Jewish mystics, uh, out of these traditions, believe that uh, a spark of the divine resided in each of the fragmented pieces that were scattered of, from this Adam Katman. And eventually, God would bring all those pieces back into unity uh, through spiritual practice in some way. Uh, in Islam... Of course, those of you who know Sufism uh, are familiar with the expressions of the great self in, in Islamic Sufi tradition. And uh, if you're not familiar with that, I recommend that you get some of the uh, poetry of Rumi and um, listen to that before you come to class next week. Uh, particularly, I mean, I think of the recordings of Coleman Barks um, of reading Rumi's poetry. Uh, in that poetry, you get a powerful expression of the, the mystic's sense that the greater self is coming in and displacing the ego. 
And uh, there's a wonderful places where Rumi uh, essentially switches places with the great self, speaks for the great self about Rumi. And, uh, but it's not just uh, Rumi. There are many, many uh, Islamic mystics who, again, like the Christian mystics, uh, got themselves in bad trouble with the authorities by uh, proclaiming that uh, the boundary between them and God was not as firm as uh, others had thought. Uh, in alchemy, alchemy, uh, it's no accident that uh, someone that thinks about these issues, uh, as Jung did, got deeply into alchemy. Because if you look carefully at the symbolism of alchemy, uh, you find all sorts of references and symbolic motifs which are uh, suggestions about the presence of this great self in very uh, um, unnoticed places. And uh, <clears throat> the whole idea of the lapis uh, in alchemy, the... Uh, the philosopher's stone uh, is uh, uh, is something that can be understood very clearly as a reference to the presence of this great self in uh, very hidden forms in the base matter of the world and of human experience. Uh, as uh, this tradition expresses growth and development, it also uses all of this gold symbolism. The idea of moving from lead to gold is a direct reference about the redemption of the, <clears throat> the great self from, from uh, expressions uh, which hide its power and beauty. Um, I didn't put on down here anything about Gnostic traditions. Uh, I, I left that out uh, not because it's not a very important reference, but because we have a conference coming up uh, on, on Gnosticism and Jung uh, uh, in this next year uh, and uh, in this coming year. And, uh, and it is one of the most uh, important traditions which show the presence of the great self in the psyche. And I will be addressing some of the Gnostic traditions with regard to the uh, great self within uh, at that conference. <clears throat> and uh, each of these traditions, you could uh, spend a tremendous amount of time looking at the expressions of this uh, large being in the soul and its, and its various expressions. But uh, if we turn to world mythology, one of the sources <clears throat> um, which you'd want to turn to in reflecting about this is familiar things that you've already looked at, but, but look at it again in this wider context, and that is uh, in uh, polytheistic traditions, look at the gods and goddesses in these traditions and reflect upon them as expressions, uh, different form expressions and different forms of the great self within the human soul. And that would be an interesting thing to think about, about the way in which the different gods and goddesses in different cultures uh, come out looking very differently. 
but having themes which you can uh, easily relate to different uh, to different cultural settings. Uh, for those of you who have not looked at Jean Bolin's books, uh, looking at her goddesses and every woman and gods and every man would be an instructive uh, a review uh, of this material on the great self because what she is able to do there is to show different forms of expression which uh, these things that we Jungians talk about as archetypal configurations, how they express themselves, how they are different in their expression. Uh, And I submit to you, if you think about them as manifestations of the great self uh, as filtered through particular cultural traditions and distorted through different cultural traditions, um, I think that you'll be able to reflect on, well, I wonder what it is that makes all of these these great forms in Greek culture come off looking so bad. I wonder why it is that it's hard to get a very positive image of the great self uh, in Greek culture. Uh, if you'll read all of these uh, different forms that, B- that Bolin talks about, none of them come out looking uh, too good and be instructive for you to think about why that might be and let us discuss that later on. Now the form of the great self that is the probably the easiest to see in world mythical traditions is of course the form expressed in hero traditions and uh no doubt you all have uh, have made yourself familiar with the hero uh, through Joseph Campbell's work uh, or the work of Otto Rank or the work of Lord Raglan. Uh, <clears throat> but uh, it's a useful thing uh, in this context uh, to go back to these hero traditions uh, and think about them as uh, traditions which chronicle the human encounter with this psychic reality and what happens to a person when they run into this psychological reality and, uh, and what, what is the sort of landscape one is put into when one runs into it and... Uh, what are the problems, promise, and pitfalls of running into this great self? I think when you bring that issue to hero traditions, uh, you see them uh, not as, as interesting uh, antiquities, but you see them as profound mappings of the human struggle to relate in a constructive way to these great energies uh, which lie in the in the human soul. And after our break, you, you may want to uh, to uh, discuss that some what 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 we learn by studying Hebrew traditions about the encounter with the great self. Uh, <clears throat> another alchemical image that is repeated widely in world mythology 
uh, is the royal couple. Uh, what Jungians often call the hieros gamas, the sacred uh, marriage, or the mysterium conjunctionis, uh, that is, the, this royal couple uh, that is imaged as a uh, high-level development in alchemy. Uh, but it's not just in alchemy that you see this so widespread. If you study uh, uh, world mythical traditions, uh, the mythology of king and queen uh, are represented extremely widely. Uh, from Egyptian mythology uh, uh, to, uh, to many, many other traditions, and one that I want to re refer you to and suggest that you look at uh, in the context of this course, uh, the Ramayana, the Hindu epic of the Ramayana. Uh, it is possible to, to read the Ramayana as a, as a drama which is a telling of the drama of the great self within men and women. And it's possible to look at the major figures, Rama, the great liberator king, warrior king, uh, Rahwana, the great rebel demon lover, uh, Sita, the uh, betrayed queen, ravished and betrayed and abandoned queen, and Hanuman, the great redeemer, uh, monkey general. It's possible to look at all of this great panoply of figures uh, in the Ramayana as aspects of the great self uh, in human men and women. And uh, so let me recommend that you look at that, that mythological cycle and we will be, as we go, we'll be talking about what one can say out of Jungian psychology about the king and the queen and Hanuman and Rahwana uh, and these figures as aspects of the archetypal self or great self. The uh, book which uh, many of you have heard me mention before which picks up on this king and queen imagery as representations of the great self uh, one of the wonderful books that uh, that does a cross-cultural uh, uh, presentation of this is the book The Old Enemy by Forsyth, F-O-R-S-Y-T-H, uh, which uh, uh, plots uh, the, uh, the great cosmic combat uh, in the soul uh, through mythological terms cross-culturally and shows... Uh, uh, an interesting sort of parallelism between these traditions with regard to the um, the king and the queen uh, in relationship to evil and uh, the creation of a world. Um, another place where you want to look to look at some of these uh, traditions about the great self is in John Perry's work. Uh, in the context of our thinking about the great self within, it would be instructive for you to look at John Perry's uh, The Self and Psychotic Process, uh, his book, The Roots of Renewal and Myth and Madness, 
uh, his book, The Heart of History, and uh, the book uh, in which he edited the traditions of uh, uh, the mythology of kingship called uh, uh, The uh, Lord of the Four Quarters. Uh, first edition was Miss the Royal Father, and it's been published in the Polish Press series as uh, The Mythology of Kingship. Um, so if you look at a wide, wide sweep of human symbolic traditions, you find such an incredible amount of, of storytelling, narrative, of uh, uh, narratives which speak from the point of view of a royal I or a royal we uh, that are far greater than the ordinary human being. Uh, uh, if you are a person operating out of a, a psychological point of view that has no sense of a collective unconscious or of, a, of an archetypal self, uh, all of these things uh, uh, might not be brought into a careful comparative reflection. If, however... Uh, you work out of a, a Jungian point of view, you begin to look at these things and following Jung, begin to see them uh, as all giving us stories of the human self with a large S told by the human self. Or as Feuerbach says, we get theology as anthropology, or we get, as we might say, mythology as psychology. And so <clears throat> this is some of the, uh, the things I wanted to lift up to you. Uh, before we take a break, let me just give you an opportunity to name some of the traditions you know about which you would put in our pot here that I've not mentioned. Do you know of other traditions that uh, uh, reflect uh, the presence of a great self uh, that I've not uh, put on the board? Any of you like to share something? Yes. Some of the esoteric concepts of uh, multiple lives uh, coming in contact as being each little egos that are part of a bigger self and each life working to express itself to the higher the higher self is using these little lives yes. to reach a greater uh, transformation okay now that's a really fascinating he's saying that uh, if you really come at uh, at your reflections uh, thinking about the great self that you can look at reincarnation theories uh, as expressions of this, that, they, that there are many esoteric traditions. The one he's pointing out is the uh, tradition around reincarnation. Uh, that certainly is true, and you, that is particularly helpful when you're looking at Buddhist views of reincarnation, for example, because if you have a very shallow psychological approach to Buddhist theory, uh, you get into this little thing about, well, why do these Buddhists talk about reincarnation when they don't believe in a self? Well, if you, 
if you understand that they're making a distinction between the ego as the little s self or the individual expression and the great self, and uh, you're talking about different lives as expressing parts of the fullness of the great self, then those Buddhist traditions don't seem so confusing. Did you have another thought? Touching into Buddhism, the people that I can think of that's most closely are touching towards this great self are some of the Buddhist people who use mysticism and meditation to access these great energies. Yes. And uh, a contrapoint to that is that there's two faces to this image of God. One is the great powers. But, and I think the Buddhist tradition has a tortuous road because one sort of acquires loving kindness. But there are many who acquire the great powers without loving kindness yes. and have great charisma and great power. Okay. Let me just. Great destruction. Right. Now, another thing he's pointing to. Uh, and it's in Buddhist traditions as he's noting it, but it's in also many other spiritual traditions, the idea of the great special powers called in some traditions cities. Uh, but there are many different words to use to express it, but they, they mean uh, paranormal uh, powers. So uh, we can broaden it and we can say all of this talk about paranormal powers is really great self-talk no matter what tradition you see it in. That's great self-talk. Another thing uh, following your idea is that there are many esoteric traditions that talk about things like the Akashic Records. You familiar with that? Well, this is a related kind of idea. It's like that there is, there is knowledge which is larger than the knowledge I as an individual could have and that and that sometimes individuals tap in to this larger knowledge uh, which seems to go on forever and seems to have access to databases which one never dreamed of. Uh, and I think we would have to say, again, as with other expressions of paranormal powers, this whole fantasy about this uh, is uh, directly related to this whole phenomenology of the great self because it's it, it, you would think about what well, it's the great self that knows. It's the great self that has all this information, that sort of thing. Other thoughts? Yes? Well, there's a sort of panoply of, of new world spiritualities from the Native American all the way to Emerson and Thoreau and yes. transcendentalism. Yes, absolutely. Emerson and Thoreau, transcendentalism really tap deeply into this whole idea uh, of a great self uh, in the human being. Uh, there's no question about that. Different native traditions, uh, different uh, pre-modern tribal traditions around the world have senses of this. In fact, uh, if you look at the book Restoring and Healing, uh, edited by Lawrence Sullivan, one of the things that you notice that ancient healing practices often uh, often included uh, getting out of your little s self and identifying with a greater self uh, in order to be healed. Now, when we get to Jung, we will be coming back to an idea very much similar to that, 
Jung believes that it's numinosity, it's contact with numinosity that heals you. Well, what's numinosity? Well, it's this soup, it's this paranormal power. It's, it is extraordinary power and which Jung associated with the archetypal self. It's the, you know, we have Rudolf Otto's idea of the Mysterium Tremendum, the Mysterium Fascinans, the tremendous mystery, the fascinating mystery. Jung associated that with the archetypal self or the great self, we would say. Uh, other thoughts of other traditions that uh, you might want to put on the table before we take a brief break. Uh, yes? Well, the other one I can think of is the, I don't even know much about it, but the spiritualism that Yates expresses in the vision. And mm-hmm. Madame Blavatsky, and yes. I'm not sure who else. Right. All of those theosophical, she's mentioning Madame Blavatsky and, uh, and other spiritual, uh, tradition of spiritualism. Uh, a lot of the theosophical images uh, in the theosophical tradition pull together f- from different cultures images of the great self and, uh, and uh, begin to use the idea of the great self uh, in that tradition as evidence for the unity of all religions. And while today, uh, with the scholarship we have today, we... We, we wouldn't say that all religions are the same, but by looking at these psychological infrastructures relating to the great self, we can certainly see what they might have been pointing to. Uh, any other thoughts about particular traditions, Dan? Robert, can you tell the aborigines and the Native Americans with the idea of the... Father Sky and Mother Earth and respect for the yeah. for the earth and they just kind of use it and use it while we're here and they never figure that they own it. Yes. Um, he's raising the issue of the uh, the traditions of the Australian Aborigines. I think that if you look at that at those traditions with this eye for the great self, you see many things, uh, not just uh, not just the references to sky and earth, but the whole idea of the dream time. Uh, there is this time that is a greater time. It's not a little time like the one you and I live in. It is the great time. And in and through it, all times are connected. So that gets you to this, to this sense of uh, of a larger reality that goes with the great self that has it has a different sense of space and time as well <clears throat> you we will when we get into that gnosticism conference i'm sure one of the things that the people will be talking about is the whole idea that goes with the gnostic idea of the anthropos the great self uh, the idea of the pleroma, the fullness, uh, which is a concept which ties together everything from uh, our discussion of Akashic records to dream time and other things. That is, the sense of a large, much larger kind of reality which individual humans can touch and can 
participate in in some way. Uh, so uh, that's parallel to the Christian idea. Uh, even though Christians, many Christians are so secularized, they would never think of it this way. But this is very much related to the Christian ideas of the body of Christ, participating in the body of Christ, the great self, and also the idea of participating in a new reality, larger reality called the kingdom of God or the reign of God. So, uh, uh, there are, if you, if you start looking at these things, there's incredible sense of largeness and fullness and completeness and power and energy which is of a different order than that which we experience in our individual egos. Uh, all of those things, I think, do attest to this sense of the great self within. Yes? Uh, does it have to be extraordinary? Isn't the largest um, more reflection of our ego's relationship to the self? Well, that's a good question. He says, does it have to be extraordinary? And, of course, that's a matter of one's perspective. Uh, uh, there's no question that touching the great self in these different traditions, you know you're dealing with something of a different order. It's like that's what Rudolf Otto was talking about when he was talking about the encounter with Das Heilige, with the encounter with the Holy. When you're in the presence of the holy, you know that it's different. And this is related to Iliade's idea of the hierophany, the manifestation of the sacred. And uh, <clears throat> uh, when you meet this great reality, it discloses itself to you. It is, it is something which is very powerful and has its own agency with regard to you. And so, uh, in that sense, it's always extraordinary. However, there are many experiences of it which are not uh, earth-shaking or, or uh, uh, perhaps not even recognized as experiences of the Great Self, but are much more soft and mellow and gentle. Uh, a lot of nature mysticism uh, doesn't really feel all that much like an earthquake, but there's still a participation in that reality. Yes. This makes me think of Taoism, yes. which you didn't mention there. Yes. You know, which seems to be not so... Yes. The whole, he's bringing up the idea of Taoism, the idea of of this gentle flow, this receptivity, this uh, this uh, incredible uh, softness that's in the larger uh, ways of heaven. Uh, so I think that's absolutely right. Chinese traditions certainly do uh, have a different feel on this, and it's still equally this sense of a larger self that it's our duty to align ourselves with so that we can be resourced and renewed and redeemed uh, and be given some larger sense of perspective and vision. <clears throat> well, why don't, we, uh, why don't we take about a 10-minute break, only 10 minutes, and, uh, and then let's come back and, uh, and uh, discuss this some more.
Uh, I'll get you out of here promptly at 9 if you'll come back in 10 minutes. Let me frame this again. Now, remember the Feuerbach framing. Because <clears throat> without the, the kind of framing that Feuerbach did with, the, uh, with, with Christ, the Christian tradition, Christian religion, as expressions of one entity, that is, expressions of the, the essence, as he put it, uh, the, this title of this, The Essence of Christianity, by what he meant by that was that this is the fullness of the potential of our species, that one individual cannot embody but that we all sense is a real thing. This is, this is a real uh, uh, human reality that we share in together and that, we, that, we, that this is directly related to that. I'm sure he does uh, a lot with the idea of the body of Christ. But the importance of framing it in, in a, a contemporary larger update of Feuerbach is important because if you don't frame it like he did, you look at all this and all you got is all this phenomenology. So it's important for us to remember, see, what I'm suggesting here is not just look at all the phenomenology. I'm suggesting follow, can do a contemporary update of Feuerbach and widen it and say there is a human psychic reality which is in its base a unity. There is something which is being expressed through all of these various expressions and this is related to what Jung called the two million year old human in you, that at the time Feuerbach wrote, he did not have the incredible amount of sociobiological evidence that we've got now to support a lot of this kind of argument. He did not have the books that I recommended that you read for some background, uh, the Anthony Stevens book. Uh, Archetypes of Natural History of the Self and his little book on Jung. And he did not have access to uh, Edward Edinger's uh, 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 Ego and Archetype, which I also suggest that you look at for the Jungian basis for this course. But, <clears throat> but if we frame it... Uh, in that Feuerbachian tradition with the update with the evidence and the, and the uh, kind of uh, much, much more extensive cross-cultural and interdisciplinary uh, materials that we have now. And you start, uh, and you do not play this post-Jungian game of uh, doing away with the objective psyche and just getting into images. But what you do is with Jung, you, you say, hmm, there is a capital S self that is expressing its enormous luminosity 
mediated through all these world traditions and that individual cultures, context, families, birth orders, etc., mediate different facets of the great self. Uh, then you then you begin to get a different take on all these things, and you, following Jung, begin to say, "Well, if I start looking at that, well, what's this great self like?" And uh, 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 I submit that uh, that is very different from simply doing comparative religion or comparative mythology. Uh, it's a radically different kind of meta-theoretical stance. Uh, when somebody loses that context, in my view, as I'll argue throughout this course, they stop being a Jungian for the first point. They stop being Jungian. Uh, secondly, they lose any capacity to really understand the, the, uh, reality of the ground of the grandiosity in the human psyche and uh, that it isn't going to go away. I mean, one of the things that we'll get into in following weeks is we will understand by looking at this why Freudian analysis cannot work. Why so many of these other schools cannot heal you because they cannot understand the problem. Once you understand that there is something in you that thinks it's God and that it doesn't go away ever, uh, then you've got a little better chance to understand the problem. And you have a little better chance to understand why ordinary kinds of shallow therapies don't get at the problem. Uh, if, you, if you don't have any sense that there's this thing in you that thinks it's God and will always think it's God, uh, no, we'll always know it's God. If you don't get that, uh, then you can't get a handle on the size of the problem we've got. It's an individual problem that you and I have, and it's this great self that's behind everything that's wonderful about us, and it's behind all the things that are problematic for us. Uh, this has all of our inspiration, all of our ambition in it. It's got all of our vision, all of our sense of significance. It's got the grounds of our depression in it. It's got the, the grounds of our incipient psychoses in it. Uh, and so on. Uh, so, uh, so I submit to you that you've got to keep in mind that we bring with us a Jungian hermeneutic here, post-Foyer-Bachian Jungian hermeneutic. Once you start bringing that frame to this material, it, this looks a lot different to you than it does to somebody at the University of Chicago in the history of religions department or the anthropology department who are convinced that the reasons for these little parallelisms between traditions are 
are uh, probably diffusion uh, and probably really superficial anyway. And they're not of much relevance for anything. So we'll saying that, uh, let's open it up now. <clears throat> Other reflections you've got to these mirrors? Yes. Um, are you saying that within us there is a sense that we are God? There is a there is a psychological reality, a psychological uh, structure in you uh, that is not your ego or ego consciousness, and that. Uh, according to this phenomenology, this witness of the human past, uh, believes itself to be divine. It's not archetypal, it's psychological. What? Well, no, you wouldn't want to make a distinction between archetypal and psychological if you were staying a Jungian. We'll get into that when we get into Jung. I mean, the archetypal structures are the psychological structures of the collective unconscious for Jung. And that is to say, the important thing to get is that this is not a figment of your imagination. This is not merely a fiction, as some uh, so-called post-Jungians would say. This is not merely uh, a product of your imagination. Uh, this is uh, a direct and ubiquitous expression of a fundamental psychological structure that's grounded in your DNA. And, uh, and that if you, um, if you uh, do not understand that there is this sort of solar furnace in there burning away with very, very powerful libido, uh, then you're not going to really understand uh, most of the uh, human attempts to form adequate defenses against the experience of this thing. And one will not understand the struggle of the ego not to be psychotic. And as the, we will see next week, you will not understand the human defense against grandiosity. See? You will not understand why we use our depressions to keep us grounded. You will not understand why we cling, we cling to our ordinariness as if it were a life preserver. Mm -hmm. uh, if you are a, behavioral, a behavioralist or if you <clears throat> uh, uh, have a lot of the, if you come out of a lot of the other uh, psychologies today, uh, <clears throat> uh, it will be extremely difficult to, to, for you to come up with a cogent explanation of, uh, of uh, uh, raw, full-blown psychotic states, the phenomenology that emerges before you medicate them, you know. Uh, and of course, with our increasing virtuosity with medication, we less and less do we have to confront this God talk. Uh, 
But if you're in the presence of someone who is in this thing and they're talking, uh, it gets your attention. And you're real clear that this is not something ordinary talking, you know. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, <clears throat> on the one hand, uh, as we'll see next week, what I'm describing here, uh, other people describe different ways. Uh, contemporary self-psychologists talk about this as the grandiose exhibitionistic self-organization. Now, they don't, most of them, as far as I can tell, uh, you know, don't think they're making any metaphysical statements whatsoever when they describe that. And uh, uh, I, along with them, do not believe that you have to be making any explicit metaphysical statements at all to describe it. It is a phenomenological reality which, once you have the theoretical basis, you can look and you can see it operating. And the self-psychologists, as we'll see next week, are very good at giving you a micro-level description of what this stuff is like. What is it like when you're in touch with this grandiosity to a degree uh, uh, that uh, your psyche cannot regulate well? And uh, th there is enormous, enormous amounts of literature on this. Uh, for example, uh, if you if you work with addictions, if any of you work with addictions, or if you are an addict, uh, have been an addict, then you might want to look at this book by Levin called uh, uh, <clears throat> "Treatment of Alcoholism and Other Addictions: A Self Psychological Approach." Because what you get in there is a is a description of how difficult it is for us human beings to regulate our states of excitation in relationship to this great, this grandiose energy that we run into. And it's a classic thing we'll talk about more later. Uh, uh, there are, you know, there are, I mean, therapists that don't have any assumption or knowledge about any of this stuff who know that if somebody, get, if one of your clients gets into a lot of display behavior, you have to be very careful how you respond to it. That is, if they get into very exhibitionistic behavior, and if you respond to it in a way that's not aware of how it's likely to burgeon, if you respond too enthusiastically to it, then uh, you may find yourself driving your patient into a hospitalization because you responded too enthusiastically to an exhibitionistic display. It's directly related to all of this thing about the great self. Uh, but if one is not familiar with all those traditions and one doesn't have any sense of this, uh, and there are many therapists that don't have any idea about the energies, the grandiose energies in the human psyche that are waiting to be overstimulated. Uh, and all the discussion of shame, all this shame talk we have, most of the folks that talk about it don't have any idea about how the shame phenomena is related to this. And if you run into a person who has enormous shame responses, you're, you're dealing with someone who is having a terrible time relating their connection with this.
Yes. Okay. If you, if when somebody compliments you, you are not able to take it gracefully and say thank you, you are in a struggle with this thing for equilibrium. If the compliment makes you lose your regulation of your psychological equilibrium, it gives you a clue about how much balance you've got in regulating your contact with this great thing in you. And the fact that you have that reactive uh, response to a compliment, oh no, uh, then that is a direct clue that you haven't befriended this thing with respect. Yes? I feel like I, I missed a step somewhere. Okay, you missed a step because I haven't had a chance to do my next week's lecture. Oh. <laughs> because, why because... Because it's very easy to lose until you have really gotten mature as a human being. It's very easy to lose the sense about where you stop and it starts. And see, uh, uh, for example, if you never received much nurture as a child, constant nurture, so you could internalize what we call structuralization, in your personality so that you regulate your states of excitation well without getting overexcited uh, and starting to fragment. If you didn't, most of us th these days have not had that good kind of adequate parenting, you know. <laughs> and so then you have some mystical experience, which according to the research, sociological research, huge percentages of people have had. I mean, the secular world is a creation of secular professors. It doesn't exist in the sociological world. Uh, Andrew Greeley's has enormous sociological evidence about people's paranormal experiences and so forth, and it's been documented by other researchers out the kazoo. So, but anyway, just give an example. So you have a you've had a mystical experience, and. You tell this in a group of people that respond extremely enthusiastically to it. Uh, your psyche's in danger at that point. Why? Because the attention stimulates the continued expansion of this experience of the great self. And it's like uh, the word inflation that Jung uses is a good one because it's like being blown up with hot air or helium, or hydrogen, more like hydrogen. You, you, don't, you don't realize that, you, that there is this thing in you that when it gets a lot of attention is like a very friendly St. Bernard, you know, 300-pound St. Bernard, jumping up against the repression barrier. And uh, so... Uh, so the important thing to realize is, I mean, see it, see, it really matters if you understand that there is a psychological entity in there that is a real psychological entity, not a metaphysical reality. We're not talking about faith here. We're talking about a, a psychological entity in the human psyche that uh, has enormous claims and enormous energy. If you see manic states, it's persons that are mainlining this stuff. See. Yes. Um, 
one other point besides is trying to achieve balance with this energy uh, at a psychological level of being balanced. I think a person needs to be physically balanced. Their physical health is important. They need to be exercising, diet, exposure to allergies. All these aspects that many of us are dealing with will take us down and not let us deal with this energy. Uh, bring that stuff back in our last session because that is really material that we need to talk about in terms of the, relation, the, the ways, practical things about dealing with this stuff in individuation uh, on our own journeys as well as in therapy because uh, um, there are some real simple things that one can do to uh, keep oneself grounded in one's human individuality uh, so that one doesn't suddenly lose oneself in this uh, place. And you're talking about some of them, so don't forget to bring back some of those. But uh, what I'm trying to get you to get a feel for, and this is my assertion, uh, it's simply that uh, that Feuerbach in his position he took was anticipating a position uh, much like that of Anthony Stevens. Um, without the science to back it up. And that, uh, that contemporary, in contemporary Jungian circles, you get a lot of people who have totally looked the other way and have not looked at Jung's emphasis on the uh, objective psyche. And so they put emphasis so much on complex theory or they put emphasis on transference, counter-transference, without, and, and reduce that to personal experiences without looking at the archetypal dimensions of transference and counter-transference. That is to say this, uh, certainly in transference, counter-transference relationships, any of our relationships, there's a personal dimension that comes out of our personal story. There's no question about it. However, this thing is also involved in our transference relationships with each other and with our therapist and with our families. And if I am projecting, if I am experiencing this entity through you, it has enormous implications about how I feel. And one of the things that you will note in people is, um, for example, I see this often uh, in people who are facing examinations. They project this thing on their professors. And when they do that, they are not likely to be able to pass their examinations effectively. Because when you put this out in the outer world, your experience is a shame experience and a feeling of unworthiness. And so you may be the brightest graduate student that ever lived, but if you're putting this projection of this entity on your examining team, you will be tongue-tied in the exams. podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. 
Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.jungchicago.org. Thank you to our 2019 supporter-level donors, Bill Alexi, Usha and Ashok Beatty, Circle Center Yoga, Arlo and Rena Kampan, Eric Cooper and Judith Cooper, Lorna Crowell, D. Scott Dayton, George J. Didier, The Cole Family Foundation, Ramakrishnan and Full Bloom Lotus, Suzanne G. Rosenthal, Deborah Stutzman, Deborah Tobin, Alexander Wayne and Lynn Kopp, and Gerald Weiner. If you would like to support this podcast, just go to youngchicago.org slash give.